Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There are many, 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 many versions of Christianity. And not just denominations like Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Baptists. Even within something like the United Methodist Church, there is a great myriad of ideas about what it means to be the church. For instance, here in Stanton, there are seven United Methodist churches. And we could all have the same text on Sunday morning. We could sing the same hymns. And just about everything else would be completely different. But one thing, one thing that might unite all churches across all denominations more than baptism or even communion is a desire to appear as welcoming and inclusive as possible. All you need to do is check a church website or a bulletin or a marquee and you can find words, a a self-made description like, we are an open, friendly, inclusive, affirming, welcoming church. Or just try asking someone about the church they attend and you're likely to hear, we love everybody. In the United Methodist Church, as I said before, we like to say we have open hearts, open minds, and open doors. What a righteous slogan we have. Inclusivity, being open towards others, they're quite the buzzwords these days. Rather than appearing at all judgmental, we want people to know that we accept everybody. Rather than seeming prejudiced, we want everyone to know that they're welcome. And rather than looking people based on their outward appearance, we want the world to know that we care more about the content of one's character. But the truth is, there are a great number of people who have been ignored, if not downright rejected, by congregations claiming to be inclusive, including our own. A couple weeks ago, I preached about the mission of the church. I stood in this pulpit and I made the claim that instead of being consumed by a desire to fill the pews, instead of trying to make the world a better place, the church is called to be the better place God has already made in the world. And as the better place, church should be the one place where no one, no one is ever lonely. I must have said that last part no less than three times from the pulpit. The church is the place where no one should ever be lonely. And the time difference from preaching and hearing the sermon to sitting down to eat for a meal in our fellowship hall afterwards was no more than 30 minutes. Like we usually do, we all lined up, we got our paper plates, and we got our food, and we sat down at our tables. And yet, there was a young family with us in church that day, the first time they've ever come to our church, and they sat by themselves the entire time. And what's more, a gentleman from our church who has been serving our needs longer than I've been alive sat by himself almost the entire time we were up there. It is not possible, not even for us here at St. John's, to be inclusive of everyone. 
and not even for the reasons we might think. You know those ones that the church is often labeled with, those stereotypical things like being homophobic or racist or elitist? There's plenty of that. No, we reject others for all kinds of things. Mental illness, politically different or incorrect views for poor social skills and status. We reject people for all kinds of reasons. Years ago, when I first entered seminary, I went on a bike ride with some of my friends to another seminarian's house. We represented the great mosaic of Protestant Christianity here in America, and we quickly began addressing why each of us was attracted to the church that we were going to be spending the rest of our lives serving. The Episcopalian, she talked about her love of the Book of Common Prayer and the fact that Episcopalians all over the world say the same words every single time they get together, no matter where they are. The Baptist, he talked about the beauty of believer's baptism and the fact that he gets to bring adults into God's flock. One of the Methodists, me, I talked about the wonder of God's prevenient grace, a love that is offered to all without cost or judgment, But then I went on to express my chief disappointment, our slogan, open hearts, open minds, open doors. I told him stories about how when I was a kid, I used to ride my bike to my local church because I wanted to talk to my pastor. And when I got there, the doors would be locked. I talked about being in Harrisonburg and playing drums for a music service. And I would drive my car over on Sunday afternoon and the doors would be locked. I told them about how many churches are filled with people whose minds are already made up about God and other people. I talked about all those churches that have people with hearts that have no desire to be open to a strange new reality in God's kingdom. To be honest, I got real fired up about it. After all, it was the beginning of seminary. I was trying to show off. But I meant what I said. Our slogan is something that we can strive for, but it is not a fair description of who we are. There will always be a newcomer who sits in a pew by herself without anybody coming to say hello. There will always be families that risk being ostracized by coming to church only to be silently judged from afar. There will always be sermon series that make people feel like they are not welcome into the fold of God's grace. So I went on and on about this until I looked at the other Methodist who was there and his face had turned bright red. I said, is everything okay? He said, my father was on the committee at General Conference that created our slogan. I think it's the best thing about the United Methodist Church. Open hearts, open minds, open doors. We've got a slogan, a nice and pretty slogan that we should strive for, but oftentimes we fall short. And when we fall short, we fall short because of sin. You know, the thing we never like to talk about, sin, that captivates us in such a way that it makes it virtually impossible for any church to unconditionally accept everyone who comes through the door. No, we do something else. We judge others based on physical and outward appearance. We make assumptions of families for a myriad of reasons. We shake our heads in disgust about couples who do not fit the normative mold that society has established. 
We should be very careful and cautious and wary about advertising and describing ourselves as open hearts, open minds, open doors. We might think we're righteous enough to live by that. We can even hope for it, but we are far, far, far from it. Only Jesus, the one in whom we live and move, only Jesus is capable of a truly open heart, open mind, open door ministry because Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus was righteous. But what about Abraham? I bet some of you are waiting for me to actually talk about Romans. What about Abraham? Paul uses this part of the letter that Betty read for us in Romans to address how Abraham is the example of righteousness. Abraham, the one who was called to leave the land of his ancestors and family to go where God had called him. Abraham, the one in whom the covenant between God and God's people was made. Abraham, the one who was promised to become the father of many nations. Abraham, the one who believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So should we follow Abraham's example? Would that make us more inclusive, more open, more righteous? Could we keep our slogan if we but follow him? Here's the thing. Abraham, he did nothing to earn this honor and distinction from God. As Paul puts it, Abraham has no ground for boasting Whenever we read about Abraham, whether it's in worship or a Bible study, he gets lauded for this journey into the unknown, for his faith and steadfast commitment to the Lord, for his perseverance through trials and tribulations. But his relationship with God, his faith being reckoned as righteousness, is only possible because of God's faith in him. Abraham is righteous because God called him, God empowered him to go into a strange new land. Abraham, rather than being the perfect model for inclusivity and openness and righteousness and faithfulness, he is the perfect example of a justified sinner. Abraham is one of many unlikely individuals like us whom God reshapes for God's purposes. Abraham is chosen not because of anything he has done, but because of God who can do anything. God is the one who worked in and through Abraham's life and not the other way around. Abraham does not justify himself or transform himself or even redeem himself. That's what God does. And the same holds true for us today. We can have the perfect advertising campaign with our slogan in big capital letters, open hearts, open minds, open doors, but that does not redeem our sinful actions and behaviors. We might think we're righteous and that we're colorblind or LGBTQ affirming or economically transparent, but we are nevertheless sinners in need of God's grace. We can even leave our church doors unlocked all week long, but we will still be broken, and we will still need Jesus. This passage, this beautiful piece of theology from Romans is about more than the example of Abraham, and it's about more than why we should have faith. Paul's emphasis is on the fact that God is the one who made Abraham righteous. That God freely poured out grace on the ungodly. That's us. 
and that God's gift of Jesus to us and to the world is grossly unmerited and undeserved. And yet it is given freely. She came to church pretty regularly, but she kept to herself. She'd sit off at the end of a pew and she'd keep her head down so as to not attract too much attention. And whenever it was time to sing, she would stand up with everyone else, but her voice never made it higher than a whisper. When it came time to say the Lord's Prayer, she would properly bow her head and she'd mouth the words. But whenever the congregation was invited to the front to receive communion, she never left her seat. Most of the church was preoccupied with thoughts about their own sins or where they'd have lunch after the service to notice the woman who sat in her pew while they were feasting on the body and the blood. But the pastor noticed. After a couple months of this, he caught her after church and wanted to know why she participated in almost every part of worship but never in communion. And she said, I feel like I don't deserve it. Friends, that's the whole point. We don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Abraham didn't deserve it. None of us have earned God's salvation. There's no list of things we can do and check off in order to get into heaven. This bread and this cup, the cross and the empty tomb, they are unmerited and undeserved gifts from God to us. We cannot have a church That is open hearts, open minds, open doors. Because we are already in it. Our presence, our sinfulness makes it impossible to be a totally inclusive community. Only Christ, only God, only the Spirit have open hearts, open minds, and open doors. Only the triune God opens up the floodgates of grace to wash away our sins. Only the triune God opens up our eyes to view others without judgment or wrath or fear or anger. Only the triune God opens up the doors of the church to the faithful community to feast at a table like this that gives us a foretaste of heaven on earth. Or to put it in Paul's words, only the triune God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So to God be the glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.